Hey guys, this is Robert Breedlove from the What Is Money Show. And as you've learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to facilitate financial security for all. They accomplish this by bringing a high level of professionalization and sophistication to the Bitcoin marketplace. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. By using Nidig, you will gain access to an end-to-end institutional-grade platform, providing Bitcoin OTC transactions, Bitcoin collateralized borrowing, secure custody, asset management, derivatives, financing, market research, and more. And all of these services meet the highest regulatory, governance, and audit standards. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and is leading the way for ongoing institutional adoption in this nascent asset class. So please be sure to check out Nidig as a single source for all your Bitcoin needs. Okay, guys, welcome back to the What Is Money show. I am sitting down today with the legend himself, Mr. Anthony Pompliano. Uh, also known as Pomp, uh, he's doing a lot of things. The guy is is everywhere, and most recently, uh, he's the founder of Pomp Investments. So I think today we're just going to jump in and talk about a, a wide variety of topics. Anthony, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I love that you're uh, you're doing this, man. Thanks, man. Uh, yeah, you've been quite the inspiration. You know, I think you've you've done a great job spreading the good word about Bitcoin and advancing education in general, um, but more specifically and more recently, financial education, uh, which a lot of your show is centered on. But you issued this thing recently. I wanted to. I thought we could start with is, and this is early July, twenty twenty one. You issued a letter stating that financial education is a national emergency. And this is something that I tend to agree with you on. <laughs> We've seen pretty, pretty handicapped in our understanding of the financial system in general, at least here in the US. And you launched the best business show to address this crisis. So maybe we could just start there. Tell me how you see this emergency and, and what you plan to do about it. Yeah, look, I, I think it really comes down to just one key thing, which is um, if you had to choose between money or knowledge, most wealthy people would choose knowledge. Uh, one of the key problems or obstacles to that knowledge is that uh, no one is mandated to teach it in schools in a actionable uh, or kind of valuable way. And when you then get out of school, most people don't know where to look for that information. Mm. And so in a society where 45% or more of the population holds no investable assets, they live paycheck to paycheck, uh, and they keep 100% of their net worth in dollars or cash, and then we are devaluing that cash at a historic pace, what you find is the single greatest impact that you can have is to get people up to speed, right? It, it, it's absolutely mind-blowing to me that at the same period, 
we have the wealthy getting wealthier than they've ever been before. We also have the poor becoming poorer than they've ever been before. And those are the two ends of the extreme. Uh, and most people kind of focus on and think of themselves, well, maybe I'm not the wealthiest, but I'm also not the worst off. So I'm somewhere in the middle. But when you look at the actual data, there are a number of studies that suggest as high as 78 to 80% of all American workers live paycheck to paycheck. And so when you start to hear those numbers, you just realize people are not nearly as well off as you may think. And so by being able to teach them uh, the importance of getting out of cash, investing, holding assets, not consuming more than they have from a financial means perspective, you realize that you can really make a pretty significant impact, not only in somebody's financial health, but also uh, there's a big mental health component of it as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The two are very closely related because you clearly can't have good mental health if you're constantly living under the threat of privation or scarcity. So is it that the show then is going to be targeted at this mainstream demographic, the 80% of Americans that live paycheck to paycheck? Is that the, that the vision? It's even, it's even crazier than that. I think what we really understood when we looked at the data over the last two years or so was the audience that I have, it's actually mostly outside the United States. Hmm. And so when you think about that, you realize this is not a US only problem. This is a global problem. And majority, not all, but majority of content producers want to focus on one jurisdiction or one geographic uh, boundary. Well, it just so happens that you and I are personally interested in an asset, Bitcoin, that is a global asset. And so when you have a global audience and there's a global asset that is kind of at the core of your personal belief, it can be really, really powerful, uh, both from a, a size of audience, but also a, a size of impact to you know, kind of work with and, and teach a global audience, not just a US audience. And sure, there's language barriers and, and kind of all the complexities and obstacles that come with that. But I think that's really the, the key thing is, you know, we are all very privileged in our sense of living in a Western world with mm -hmm. good banking infrastructure, uh, a dollar that actually has been probably one of the most disciplined in relationship to uh, other fiat currencies around the world. And so we tend to think that uh, this might not be as big of a problem as we thought. Now, 78% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. The number globally is much, much higher, right? right. That there's a, uh, a global poverty rate, and this blew my mind. The global poverty rate is calculated on less than $2 a day, wow. right? So to, to be in poverty globally, you have to have less than $2 a day. And it's just like in the US, I mean, you know, it, we would think of it as something much, much higher than that, right? I don't know if it'd be $20 a day or $50 or, or whatever the number is. Yeah. But when they calculate the global poverty rate, we're talking about people that make less than $2 a day. And it's, you know, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of people around the world. And it's just really, really dire situation. And we can, you know, hopefully change that by simply educating them on uh, what they can do from a financial perspective to obtain security, right? Most people think of financial freedom. I think of it just simply as security. People want right. to know that they can, um, you know, make a better life for their family. They can feed their loved ones, that they don't have to worry about not having a place to live. Um, you know, kind of the, the, the absolute extremes of financial hardship. If people can avoid those things, you find that they're actually uh, okay with 
you know, maybe I don't need to be the richest person in my neighborhood, but I also don't want to be the worse off. And so if I'm just kind of like doing, you know, as well as everybody else, I'm okay with that. That's staggering. The $2 a day. And is that, is that the UN that sets that line or one of the international bodies maybe? I'm not really sure to be honest. Um, But the, the thing that, uh, is so I think fascinating to me um, is that when you think of that international kind of poverty line definition, right? That by Investopedia, uh, yeah. it's basically a monetary threshold okay. under which an individual is considered to be living in poverty, and the current international poverty line is a dollar ninety per day, right? So, so a dollar ninety. If you're under that, you're in global poverty. And it was originally set at a dollar a day and yeah. they've moved it up. They've almost yeah. doubled it. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. Um, and, and so it's just crazy to think about that. And, and it's the world bank that sets that um, as the, uh, as the poverty line. So is it, I mean, it sounds like they adjusted it upward, but I'm sure they haven't adjusted it since probably March, 2020. I mean, it just seems like a double whammy to me. It's like, not only are they depreciating the dollar, but they're probably, not inflation adjusting appropriately that poverty line. So um, like so many metrics coming out of, you know, central, the central banking complex, like CPI or anything else seems like a flawed metric. Um, yeah, it, it was set at a dollar and then it appears that in 2008, it went to a dollar 25. And then in 2015, they moved it to a dollar 90 mm. and it stayed at a dollar 90 cents. So, that, so they have moved it up periodically, yeah. uh, but obviously at n- nowhere near the rate that they probably should be in order to right. uh, accommodate for you know the changes that have occurred over the last 18 months. Yeah. So since maybe 2015, I bet the dollar supply has increased at least 50%. So we'd expect that number to do another 50% jump. That's crazy. I um the so yeah, we're exporting our inflation in a lot of ways out of the US. It has a disproportionate impact abroad than it does on us here at home. Is the financial education level similar abroad? Because in the US, which is all I really have knowledge of, it seems very poor. You know, I always uh, draw this comparison that. And I'm not I'm not uh, merit dropping here, but I went to school for accounting and finance. I have a master's degree in accounting and finance. They taught me absolutely zero about personal financial management. Like you don't literally nothing, not one class, not one course, not one day even. So I can only imagine that any other major would be equally poor on the education side. Is that the same situation abroad? It is, uh, it is very, very, very bad. Um, if you think about uh, some of the, the kind of structural frameworks, if you will, in the US, um, those exist abroad as well. Uh, there is um, a couple of different metrics that you kind of measure this with. Uh, one of them that's probably the most popular is this S&P Global uh, FinLit survey. It's basically mm. a bunch of literacy questions measuring um, kind of financial decision-making. Uh, so literally, you know, basic decision-making, interest uh, compounding, inflation, risk diversification, all of those different types of things. Um, And as you would expect, uh, you know, minorities do worse, uh, women do worse globally. Um, And then when you start to look at kind of the the penetration, if you will, as a percent of adults in a country that are financially literate, there is literally uh, like three regions in the world that get over 55%. Mm. 
Wow. Right. So that's what we're talking about. Over 55%, only three regions of the world. And that's uh, kind of North America. So if you think of the US and Canada, uh, that is Australia. Mm. Uh, and then there are a handful of European countries. Right. But even a place like Italy doesn't have 55% financial literacy. Right. So, I mean, we're talking about super developed countries in the grand scheme of things uh, do not have financial literacy. And then you start to get into, you know, kind of even worse areas, um, a place like maybe India, right, with over a billion people. They have less than 25 percent financial literacy. And wow. you kind of move through the uh, through, through the global photo and and it's just bad. Right. And, wow. and I almost kind of chalk it up and I just say, listen. Uh, you or I could play the data game all we want, same way that the Fed or any other economic organization does. Mm. All I know is that it's nowhere near what it should be, and yeah. it's not getting better at any material rate of improvement. Yeah, agree completely. It's honestly stunning. You know, this is the most one of the most important aspects of life of managing your life is to manage your finances appropriately, and we just have, you know general ignorance, I guess you would say, or just general diseducation, miseducation, lack of education. It's incredible. Um, I think what you're doing with that, it's a very noble cause. Um, is this part of a broader movement? I mean, it seems like education's failed people in a lot of ways. Uh, this would perhaps be one of the most fundamental aspects. Is this, the the intuition I have is that this plays into the broader decentralization of media, education, people just becoming, um, people seeking answers on their own, you know, people learning on their own. Um, is that how you see it as well? That people are just kind of, the, the institutions have failed them, so they're taking matters into their own hands? Yeah, I, I think um, it's a combination of things, right? I'd, I'm always scared to kind of pinpoint one single um, cause for mm. these kind of larger, larger uh, trends. I think one of it is people feel like the institutions failed them. I think a second one is uh, they feel like um, hope and uh, some kind of psychological relief is slipping through their hands. Mm. Um, and then I think that there's an element just of they don't even understand what exactly is happening. They just feel the impact of it, right? So there, there's yeah. kind of like I, a, a distrust. There's a I'm self-aware that these people aren't teaching me something, so I need to go learn it myself. And then there's just people who they couldn't even tell you what inflation is, right. but they know that everything keeps getting more expensive, but they're not making more money, right? Yeah. They, they see it in their finances. They, they, they can tell that uh, everything is kind of uh, escaping them from a, from a cost perspective. And so, frankly, it doesn't really matter how they get there. But I do think you're right in that there's almost like this global awakening of people saying, wait a minute, I need to figure this out. Yeah. And what I think is one of the parts of the conversation that is nuanced, which the incumbents actually scoff at and kind of thumb their nose and, and laugh and mock, and mock and ridicule young people specifically for, but they're missing the point on is almost everybody I know, almost everybody gets into investing because they're trying to get rich. Mm -hmm. Many of them move from a profit seeking and profit optimization to a risk management. And they learn over time, like, you know, the best investors survive, mm -hmm. right? right. Uh, and, and, and kind of the, this uh, completely different way of, of approaching it. But whether it is highly speculative assets like the GameStops and the AMCs, 
people run to them because there's a get rich quick. It's a, it's a human psychological um, uh, kind of mechanism that pulls them in. Then if you look at something like, um, you know, Bitcoin, right? There's an element of it's a highly volatile asset. So people run in for that. And then after they start holding it, they start to understand what the actual asset is, you know, mm -hmm. come for the money, stay for the money. I think is uh, maybe Marty Bent uh, has said that. Mm -hmm. And I also think that's true of real estate and things that are considered, you know, less risky from an asset class standpoint. So we should lean into that, right? We, we should actually say, yes, you can get rich, yeah. but the path to doing that is not necessarily the one that you believe. And so, you know, one of the things we've been doing on the show that, you know, we enjoy doing, we being my brothers and I, uh, is we try two to three times a week to find a story of an individual who has built a life of happiness, of security, of financial freedom for themselves from a situation that would be very, very difficult for most to comprehend, right? right. And, and as we just started to pay attention to this, what we realized was uh, everyone thinks of uh, kind of, oh, I want to be a millionaire, right? Mm -hmm. Millionaire was kind of that, that benchmark. And you could argue that uh, becoming a millionaire because the currency has been devalued so much has almost become uh, too easy of an attainable goal. Mm -hmm. So now it's kind of shifting to like, oh, billionaire is kind of the new millionaire. But from a millionaire standpoint, what you find is 80% of millionaires are becoming millionaires, having never inherited a single dollar. Hmm. So this is not just the money's being passed on to them or their parents were rich or anything. 80% receive zero. 33% of millionaires as a household income, either them or them and their spouse, never made more than 100K in any one year. Wow. Which is crazy, right? No. So that all of a sudden makes it much, much more obvious that this is attainable for anybody. Right no. is okay. I didn't inherit anything, and I don't even make six figures a year, but I could still become a millionaire because thirty-three percent of uh, millionaires—that's what they did. Yeah. And so on the show, what we've been doing is we've been going and we've been finding these people who have these incredible stories. So we recently did this guy. Um, uh, it's called the Condo King. Which, of course, <laughs> if your name is the Condo King, uh, you, you've got some flair to you. But he's developed over eighty thousand apartments in the South Florida area. Wow. And he came to America from Argentina at 19 years old. He worked in the local economic development office as like the lowest person on the totem pole and eventually worked his way up. And now he's got a net worth of over $3 billion. Wow. And so you look at that, you say, wait a second, this guy came to our country. His parents are Cuban exiles. He was born in Argentina, moved here at 19, when most of us are trying to figure out what parties we're going to on, on the yeah. weekend, right? Yeah. He's going to a whole new country, uh, and he basically has to build a life from scratch for himself. And he did it to the highest degree of success in an industry that's actually pretty difficult, right? It's, yeah. You don't just get lucky and build a multi-billion dollar uh, kind of net worth in real estate, right? Yeah. And so I think when you see that, what you start to understand is like, damn, anyone could do this. They just got to figure it out. And part of figuring it out is the knowledge. And then the other part's hard work and, you know, yeah. no guarantee of success, but, but the, you got to at least do those two things. If, uh, if you want to be successful. Yeah. So that's an amazing way to approach it just to give people inspiration and then also explaining kind of the rules of the game for them. Right. Cause it seems like a lot of people don't even understand how the game is played and that's why they're left behind. Um, that's, that's really cool, man. I'm looking forward to, to digging into that more. Um, so let's zoom out a little bit here. I want to look at you as an entrepreneur. Um, you're everywhere, man. You're like, I don't know if you have 
clones of yourself or how you do this, you you just, you've got to be one of the hardest working guys in the business. Um, I think we've talked about this before. I'm pretty sure you're an early riser. If I'm not mistaken, do you have like, I don't know, morning ritual, daily rituals, certain habits, uh, certain patterns of, of behavior that, that help you appear to be everywhere at once. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. I try not to think about it too much because, uh, it, to me, it feels like, um, the more you think about it, the more you realize that it may not be normal. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, it, it's pretty simple. Uh, I would say that there's a core kind of philosophy. It's you don't have to have a trade-off between having like a good life and being successful in whatever you want to do. I don't care if you want to play a sport in business and investing and mm-hmm. you know whatever activity. And so once you understand that, then you can kind of back into like, what am I going to do during the day? How am I going to structure my day? And there's two schools of thought. One is uh, kind of this maker schedule. So I'm going to do no calls. I'm going to do no structure and just like, I'm going to do whatever I want to do that day. I think that that optimizes for what I would call ultimate happiness, mm-hmm. right? So, so pure, I'm only going to be happy. I don't care if I'm productive or not. Then I think that there is uh, kind of another extreme, which is every 15 minute block on your calendar from the second you wake up to the second you go to sleep. You know, we all have those friends or, or I've done it in our own past. You're optimizing for ultimate productivity, zero happiness. But I think what you can do is you can find kind of a middle ground. And so that's pretty much what I do, which is um, I basically break my calendar into like blocks of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I know is that from an output standpoint, I'm most effective in the morning. Mm-hmm. And then from a kind of intake standpoint, uh, I can do that later in the day uh, without losing kind of a, a lot of quality or, or awareness, things like that. Mm-hmm. So for me, it, it's kind of just understanding who you are as a person and like what your goals are. And then also being okay with uh, swinging kind of the pendulum from, I think early in my career, I was much more intake, 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 not a lot of output. Mm-hmm. to now I'm almost exclusively output, very little intake. Some of it's just, I can't keep up with my email and all the messaging platforms and like all this stuff. And so it's just like, I, I don't care. Like I'm going to miss things, Like that's going to happen. I'm okay with that. That's fine. Yeah. Uh, but I'm going to focus on what I can control, which is the output. And I think it all starts literally, and this is going to sound cheesy as hell, but literally every day when I wake up, I just say to myself, like, today's going to be a good day. <laughs> right. And sometimes I'll even like, I'll, I'll literally say it out loud to my wife. Like today's going to be a great day. Yeah. And as dumb as that sounds, uh, somebody heard me say this one time and they sent me a bunch of academic research, which is um, if you sit and you smile like a big smile all by yourself in a room for 10 seconds, it is proven that you will become happier. <laughs> like you can, tr- you can trick your brain into being happier. Right. And, and so the, and the same thing is uh, there's a bunch of studies that showed if when you woke up in the morning, if you read three positive headlines, didn't even read the articles, just three positive headlines, you would be much more likely to say at the end of the day, you had a good day than if you woke up and you read three negative headlines. 
And so there's this element of like, one, our brains are much more powerful than, you know, we ever would imagine. And so if you understand how to kind of use that to your advantage, you can trick your, your body, uh, kind of physiologically. Uh, but also too, is just, uh, you can set the tone for your day. Yeah. Right. We've all had those days. Like you ever wake up and then all of a sudden somebody calls you at 8 a.m. with a problem. You're just like, like yeah. threw my whole day off. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. You can try to recover, but th- there's an element to it, I think, that you can use to your advantage. Yeah. That's really interesting. So that is, I mean, that's your mantra almost, right? Wake up. Today's going to be a good day. And I go to sleep every night and I tell myself, today was a great day. And sometimes <laughs> it's not but I lie to myself. Right. <laughs> and, and, and the whole reason is because, uh, you made it yeah. right. Like, I, I, I don't know. I, I just, I have a very, very kind of different view of this now, uh, mainly because I, I think I've gotten to a point in my life where, um, there's so much suffering in the world. There's so many problems in the world. Yeah. Like I'm literally the luckiest, most spoiled person in the world. Um, and, you just got to be okay with that. Like, like there's nothing that you can really do uh, to give it back. Right? right. Other than try to help other people. And so right. when, you know, that's why I think I spend so much of my time just saying, you know, Hey, how can you have maximum impact? Yeah. Right. And I think most people, they get to a certain point in their life and they're going to say, okay, I'm going to give money or I'm going to give, uh, you know, some other kind of material good. Yeah. And I think what I've come to learn is, um, you know, you can have impact with that, but actually the most impactful thing you can do is you can teach somebody how to do it themselves. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you kind of look at it from a, if you teach people how to protect their wealth, uh, you can have generational impact on that person's life and their family's life. Uh, because frankly, a lot of people are just, they don't have the ability to, to learn that stuff or, or somebody to teach it to them. Yeah. Amen to that, man. That's, that's super powerful. Um, yeah, it, it's incredible that now that you pointed out, it's like to set the tenor for your day is so important because I notice days if, if I get up and do kind of like my reading morning ritual, it tends to be a much better day than if I happen to wake up and just check Twitter immediately or something like that. So do you have, you've got your mantra, then do you have any ritual behind that or anything you try to do first thing or do you just go straight to work? So I know that uh, if I don't write uh, the letter every morning, mm. um, I won't get it done. So that is like, I'll get up, I'll shower, I'll grab some coffee. And that's the first thing I do. And there is a, um, uh, there's like a meditative or therapeutic uh, kind of process to sitting down, picking a topic, having to formulate your thoughts, and then uh, putting the... Um, you know, kind of putting it into uh, practice. Yeah. And for whatever reason, writing just has become like a, a habit of mine. Right. Um, one day I'll wake up and I'll just be like, all right, I'm done. Like, I, yeah. I just know myself, like, like I'll break uh-huh. the habit one day and it'll be over. But uh, that's probably the, the first thing. And then the second thing I would say is, again, I really focus on output in the morning. Yeah. So uh, I, I don't... Um, I don't do email. I don't do uh, kind of all the things where somebody else controls my time or, yeah. or can kind of, you know, I literally think of it as like attacking me. Right. Yeah. Uh, instead, like I want to be on offense for as long as possible in the morning. And yeah. then at some point I just throw my hand and I say, all right, fine. You guys got me. You know, what, what, what's, what's the bullshit I have to do today that, you know, I'm happy to do, but you know, it's definitely yeah. not my choice uh, in terms of doing it. 
That's a great way to look at it. Just stay on offense as long as you can until you got to flip the defense. Uh, offense is the best defense, right? <laughs> yeah, right. But defense wins championships. So I don't know. I guess that is true. That. You still yeah. got to do it. You still got to do it. Yeah. What? Um. So I, I think, well, I mean, for me personally, like something I find admirable in you is you just seem to have the hustler energy. Like, I guess this is a product of you setting the mantra in the morning and then structuring your day according to your temperament, right? Like, you know, your output's better in in the morning and you do uh, intake later. What, like, do you have any other life hacks or tricks where you're getting this wellspring of energy? Because I mean, I think a lot of people really lack that today. You know, like people struggle, people drag themselves out of bed to go to work or do what they have to do. Um, So do you have any advice on that? I mean, look, I think there's two components and it might not be the most popular answer, but I think one is uh, people are scared of themselves. And so they stay in shitty jobs, working with shitty people Mm -hmm. uh, for really long periods of time. And, uh, you know, literally people who are very close to me, right, friends, family, et cetera, uh, do the same thing. And sometimes I'm just like, Nobody cares about your job. Nobody cares about that company. The people that you're working with that you think are so important literally are never going to think about you once you leave your job, right? Like like all the classic things yeah. and they'll hem and haw for months and then eventually they leave the job and they're like, oh, wow. Like I don't even remember some of my coworkers' names, yeah. right? You know, a yeah, year yeah. later or whatever. Yeah. And so it's just... Um, I, I think there's kind of this like a local bias, if you will, uh, yeah. and recency bias that definitely yes, happens. Yeah. And, and so... I always just ask people, like, I think Jeff Bezos probably has a pretty good framework on if you uh, if you go all the way to 80 years old and look backwards, yeah. do you regret something that you did, mm. right? Or do you actually regret not doing something? Yeah. That's a, that's a pretty good way to kind of clarify things. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing that uh, I always joke around about is can you pick the dopest option mm. right and this and this comes from something of uh my brothers and i years ago were joking around and we were trying to figure out what we should make our instagram bios mm. right as stupid as this sounds mm-hmm. and where we settled was forget social media i do dope shit in real life and, and the reason why we said that was because like, yeah, sure. Like the internet is cool and we all enjoy the internet, yeah. but like, do you have the substance behind it? Right. Yeah. Like you can have the coolest social media profile, all this stuff. Like, do you actually do cool shit? Right. And so that kind of somehow in a weird way became like a mantra of just like, if you're faced with two options, pick the dopest one yeah. and the dopest one can have different meaning to different people, can have different meaning in different uh, situations. Cause it's not always the safe option. Sometimes it's the riskiest option. It yeah. might not always be the easiest option. Sometimes it's the hardest one. Maybe it is the most dangerous or maybe it is the safest. Like yeah, each situation is different, but if you optimize for, you know, how far on the dope scale you go, yeah, the decisions you end up making end up being uh, pretty good ones. Right. And so like some of my favorite memories in my life are things that we explicitly did that if we were looking at it through a different perspective, we wouldn't have picked that. Yeah. And so when, you know, you start saying to yourself like, all right, how am I going to spend my weekend this weekend? Yeah. How many people are just like, all right, I'm going to go and I'm going to, you know, 
uh, see my same two friends that I see every Friday night. We're going to sit there with our dogs and then we're going to talk to each other about, you know, oh my God, you're not going to believe my dog took a poop on the sidewalk this week. And I didn't have the, you know, bag to pick up the poop. And then on Saturday morning, I'm going to go and I'm going to get to the grocery store and then I'm going to go and I'm going to, you know, sit downstairs and I'm going to do my taxes and, and like the weekend's gone. Yeah. But instead of you said to yourself, like, Yo, are your two friends really going to miss you this weekend? No. All right. How about this? Call them up and be like, you know what? I'm going to go do some dope shit this weekend. And at the end of the weekend, I want to be able to go into work on Monday and tell a wild story. Yeah. You want to come with me? Yeah. And like, if your friends are like, no, you're an idiot. Be like, okay. But then like, go do it yourself. Yeah. Right. And, and what you're going to realize is like, not everyone has that opportunity. People have young kids. They've got life responsibilities. Yeah. Like, like I get it. But you can still do certain things that add the variety and, and kind of variability to it. And when you do that, I think it just leads to a more fulfilling life and yeah. it's not so boring. And you get out, and when you get out of the boring component, that's where you can break out of like that um, almost like uh, it lulls you to sleep. Like, don't let life lull you to sleep. Right, right. But most people, you know, you've probably heard the story of like, Oh, I graduated college. Then I woke up and I was 60. Like what, what the fuck happened? Yeah. yeah <laughs> well, like, yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I got married and I had a kid and, uh, Oh, I still live in my hometown and whatever. And it's like some people that is a perfectly good life. That's what they want. They're incredibly yeah. happy. There's a lot of people that are like, yeah, I don't really remember how I got in this situation. No. Like now here I am, my job sucks, but like, I need to have a salary so that I can pay my bills. Yeah. Yeah. yeah whatever. Right. Yeah, so, look, I I don't know if it's the right strategy for everybody, but that's the way I look at it. Well, I love the the term you're using actually, and you know it's very modern this term dope, but it's it's so versatile because not the safest option, not the most dangerous necessarily. It's all context driven, and I think this is a great point too about social media. I think some people now even let social media lull them to sleep, where they're optimizing for the highlight reel of their life versus the actual substance, as you said. And it's important, I mean, at least in my mind, to just prioritize the substance and let the highlight reel kind of fall where it may. Um, that's super cool and a very adventurous way to approach life. <laughs> what- yeah, and, and, I, and I think part of it also is, um, it all stems from, you know, when I was younger, uh, I was 20 years old and I was in the military uh, I just realized the probably the most important lesson in life. We're all gonna die. Mm. Super morbid. Mortal. Yeah, but if that's the truth, then enjoy it while you're here. Yeah, it's great. Great way to look at it, man. Got to keep the end in mind always, even the bitter end. What? So, where are you now? Like again, I th- you're everywhere. You're super dynamic. Uh, lots of entrepreneurial spirit like where where are you headed now i mean is this something you can talk about i know you just launched the show i'm sure you're focused on that for the time being is there anything on the horizon for you no i, I think that we're just trying to figure it out as we go um in terms of uh you know that there is uh, a lot of opportunity out there and the more opportunity you see you have to get really good at saying no, mm-hmm. right? And really understanding um, 
how important or impactful is a opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, and so what I mean by that is, you know, the, just the, the more resources and leverage that you have at your disposal, the easier some things get, but also the harder things get. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, use, uh, use a very elementary example. When you have distribution, right? So, for example, I've got a lot of followers on Twitter. You can very quickly trick yourself into, I could start a million companies. Mm -hmm. And because I have distribution, I can get early traction on them. Mm -hmm. But you actually have to sit there and think, okay, but is this really a real problem? Is this actually the solution to that real problem? Mm -hmm. How big of an opportunity is it? Like you, you kind of walk through the various uh, elements of it. And what you find is like, eh, most things that sound good uh, in the beginning end up actually being, you know, not nearly as, uh, as good as you thought. And so being able to say no to things, even right. things that might be good, but not great, uh, becomes a pretty uh, valuable skill as well. Yeah. I like the way you put that. I've heard it put to me that the root word of sovereignty actually is no, which is kind of like what Bitcoin's all about is it gives us the ability to say no to the dollar. So it's almost like you have to cultivate that sovereignty within yourself to be an effective entrepreneur and investor. Um, what That kind of segues into another topic I wanted to hit on anyways, which was just investing in psychology and that whole game. How do you like, do you have a framework through which you're evaluating deals? Is it, is it, um, is it a formula? Is it, is every deal that you're evaluating kind of taken on a case by case basis? How do you look at the investing landscape? Over time, this has evolved, but now I just care about the person I'm investing in. Mm. Everything else that I look at is merely used as a filter for who this person is. Mm -hmm. How good is this individual at selecting a market, at building a team, mm -hmm. at doing X, Y, or Z activity? My guess here is that when you focus on the person, it comes from this belief, everything that happens in building a business will change. Mm. What product they're building, the market conditions, the um, competitive landscape, uh, the regulatory environment, um, technology, I mean, everything will change. If you pick the right person, they'll navigate everything as best as possible. Mm -hmm. If you don't pick the right person, then they can be going incredibly well. The first stumble, it's over. Mm -hmm. And so to me, I just keep honing in on who is this person? Is this the right person to give money to? Right. And I don't want to say who it is, but somebody uh, who's a very prolific angel investor uh, once said to me, um, about 80% of their net worth is tied up in early stage investing. And I asked them, that's crazy. Why would you do that? And this isn't somebody who like, I, they put in a little bit and it grew. Mm. They, they continue to reinvest about 80, 85% of their net worth in all early stage startups. Mm. And they said, 
the most powerful thing I can do to grow my wealth is to take my hard-earned money and hand it to hundreds of entrepreneurial teams that are hard at work every day trying to grow my wealth for me. Mm. Wow. And in those scenarios, what would you do? You're hiring people. You're hiring them to grow your wealth. Yeah. And so whether it's your fund or it is your, um, you know, your uh, uh, personal wealth, I think that framework is really powerful. and And I think it's actually pretty accurate. Yeah. And so when you're investing, who are the people? Yeah. And if you make good decisions there, you win more times than you lose. And if you make bad decisions, you probably lose more than you win. And so does that, this is the old, you know, bet on the jockey, not the horse kind of mentality. Is it, have you found that to be more of a cognitive evaluation or is it more instinctual on the person or a little bit of both? Like how, has that changed for you? How the, the way you're actually evaluating um, the entrepreneur themselves? The biggest lesson I've learned is probably the best answer to this, which is um, early in my career, uh, I made a number of investments that ended up being incredibly uh, valuable. They grew in, in uh, value very quickly. And so these are companies that I seed invested in that ended up growing to be you know billion plus dollar companies. And it was like literally out of the gate, a number of them. Um, and I, I basically fooled myself because the way that, the, the process of which I used to make those investments was all idea-based. Hmm. It was, Robert pitched me an idea. This is a great idea. If I was running the company, I would make A, B, and C tactical decision. I would make you know A, B, and C strategic decision, and this could become a multi-billion-dollar business. And when I made the investment, what happened was they made eighty percent of the decisions that I thought they should make, and it ended up being successful. But then I would make other investments and take the exact same approach of here's the tactical, here's the strategic, here's what I would do if I was running the business, mm-hmm. and they did not make those decisions and they were not successful. Mm-hmm. And then there were companies where I invested. I thought, here's the strategic and tactical decisions. They didn't do what I thought they should do and they were successful. Mm. And so what I took away from those three scenarios was who cares what I would do? I'm not the <laughs> one running the company. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, like it's not me. I can't think of it as what's this idea and how big could it be? Yeah. I have to think, what is the, uh, who is the person yeah. and what are they going to do? Do they have sound decision-making? Are they the type of person who can recruit talent, can fundraise, can close customers, can do all this stuff? Yeah. Whole different kind of uh, evaluation than great idea, you know, could I make it successful, right? Because here's a perfect example. Let's say you and I came up with a really dumb idea, right? Uh, we would, I don't know dog poop picking up, right? Because we yeah. talked about that earlier. <laughs> could you and I build that into a business big enough where we can make a living? I'll bet on us. <laughs> it's not going to be a really successful business. It's not going to be a venture backable business. It's not whatever. Yeah, but like yeah. if we really hustle, we get some kids in the neighborhood, you know, like, yeah. like we'll kind of get it up and, and maybe we can absolutely pull off a miracle, make a hundred grand a year. Yeah. <laughs> right. It, it's like, sure. You can kind of almost, um, uh, absolutely like bulldoze a situation. Mm -hmm. Right. 
but it's still that's not a scalable idea. The market right, said that, right, big, right, right. you know, all that type of stuff. And so I think you just got to uh, understand. And, and and by the way, none of these ideas are mine from like an mm-hmm. originality standpoint. Um, it, it's just that you've got to learn them for yourself. And then you realize that you read something one day, you're like, oh, damn, yeah, I could have yes. just read this book, you know, a right. year ago and, and learned the lesson. <laughs> yeah. and, and so there's this whole thought process of like uh, when a bad team meets a good market, the market yeah. wins. When a good team meets a bad market, the market wins. Yeah, and so it's right. more about like the market than it is the team, uh, and sometimes as well. That's a great point. Uh, yeah, the, if only it were that simple. Because I've had that experience many times where you learn a lesson the hard way. You you know you've got your skin in the game, whatever it is, either a personal lesson or an investment lesson, and then you'll read some wisdom after the fact, and you're like, oh, if only I had known this a few years ago, it would have saved me. The pain, but for whatever reason, humans being human, we at least me, I think many others too, tend to have to learn the hard way. Um, the reading doesn't always cut it. So is it are, so your levels of filtration then on deal, you're filtering out what you think are good ideas first, then looking at the individuals, or you're just filtering for individuals and then considering the idea? I think that it uh it's more art than science for sure. Um, there's an element to this of, um, you kind of know it when you see it Mm -hmm. and there's a, an intuition to it. I do think, um, people are trying to make this more quantitative. Um, but the reason why I'm not so worried about the idea is because there is an element of, if I think it's a good idea, it might not be a good business. Mm -hmm. And, Cause I would have thought Uber was a stupid idea. I would have thought Airbnb was a stupid idea. I would have thought, you know, a bunch of these businesses were stupid ideas because they were counterintuitive, but the counterintuitive nature or the contrarian nature of them is what made them valuable. That's right. Yeah. And so in some weird way, uh, while probably an exaggeration to some degree, investing in the bad ideas, but good people may be the best investment strategy. Interesting. Okay. Because some bad ideas are just bad ideas, sure. But some bad ideas on the surface end up actually being the disruptive ones. Right, right. And that is where the most asymmetry lies and the most asymmetry leads to the most returns. And you can be wrong a lot if you're right once in a while. Right. Like it's just a very, very um, different way of viewing the world when you are, you know, investing from a venture capital standpoint than when you're investing somewhere else. You're almost paid to lose money, yeah. Because the times that you accidentally don't lose the money end up paying for all of the other times, right? Um, but that's hard. Human nature doesn't, you know, you don't want to be wrong. You don't want to lose money, right? Like, like it's a uh, got trick yourself, yeah. That's it. That's an interesting way to look at it is that the bad ideas often just turn out to kind of be your blind spots. Even they're so contrary and they're hard, hard to designate as a good idea before they succeed. Um, how do you then clearly there's a lot of failure in that business model, right? Most deals fail. How do you deal with that? Um, is it, is there, do you try to create any separation between yourself and the deal? Like, I'm mean, clearly 
you have to have an expectation that I don't know the number, 80% of deals, venture deals are going to fail, but the few that do succeed make up for the rest. Is there any psychological trick or tactic to dealing with failure in the space? I don't know if it's necessarily like a trick. I think you just have to always view it through the lens of it's experimentation. Mm. And an experiment does not have the expectation of success. The point of experimentation is to get an answer. Mm. Mm. So it's not to get the right answer. It's to get an answer. And if you learn how to experiment correctly, you understand that it's going from thesis to thesis to thesis or idea to idea to idea and always getting an answer. And the reason why I kind of position it that way is when I worked at Facebook, probably the single most important lesson I learned there was we would run these growth teams. and. The executives on the growth team always had a framework of when we run tests, we do two things. We have a very clear objective of what we are trying to measure, and we have perfect execution. Hmm. Having a clear objective when running an experiment, very intuitive, makes complete sense. Hmm. The obsession with perfect execution is counterintuitive until they tell you why. And the reason why was if we get the answer of this thesis did not work that we are testing and we did not execute correctly, we are left Mm. wondering, Mm. was it the right idea with bad execution or was it the wrong idea? But if you always execute it perfectly, then you can basically hold constant for you're only testing the idea, you're not testing execution as well. Mm. And so I think of that a lot about, uh, I think about that a lot with startups around the idea of if you're a founder and you're trying to build something, the thing you can control is execution. If you execute correctly, whether you are right or not is besides the point. It's focusing on the process and the final outcome ends up being what it was always going to be, but right. your job is to make sure that we're testing the idea. We're not testing execution and idea because if we get to the end and we're like, shit, we made all these mistakes in execution. Well, maybe you actually are right. Right. But like, we don't know that, right? Yeah. It's, like, it's just pure experimentation in the earliest stages. And so naturally, if, if you look at it that way, you don't worry about right or wrong. You worry about finality of answer. And then just naturally, if you run enough experiments, you end up finding the right ones. That's, you know, so obvious when you put it like that, but you would not typically just pull that one out of your hat. It reminds me of this old Southern wisdom. You measure twice, cut once type of thing. Like you just cannot screw up the execution because then you're left wondering. It's, it's, It's ambiguous, right? You would have made this investment to experiment. And then you just didn't get the answer, which is the entire point of the experiment in the first place. So interesting. Where, how clearly uh, memes are becoming a bigger and bigger part of reality for 
all of us. Um, how do you view the significance of memes or memetics in the investing world? Like we saw this whole AMC, you know, kind of the crowd fighting it back against the hedge funds earlier. When what was that five, four or five months ago now? Um, what, what, how do you think about that landscape? It seems like something that is very, people think it's a modern thing, like memes or something that just are native to social media. But as we know, they've you know been around for as long as we've been around pretty much. So how do you look at that side of the world and how does it influence investing in, in the digital age? The meme is the message. It always has been. It always will be. The best way to answer whether this is new or old is to simply give an example of the greatest financial meme over the last 50 years, mm. which is Berkshire Hathaway. It is mm. the original meme stock. <laughs> it is a religion. There is Jesus. There are disciples. There is a Mecca to Omaha every year. There is an adoration. There is a Bible. There are every single component of religion is mirrored in what has been built at Berkshire. I don't think that's a bad thing. Yeah. Just calling it for what it is. And most of it is done around a psychology that is used to control emotion. Mm, Okay. Religion, in many ways, is an entire kind of conceptualization of ideas and actions that are used not to, in many cases, have a physical impact, but to have a psychological impact. Right. Yeah. And depending on the denomination, depending on kind of your severity of adherence to that religion, you kind of get a variation of outcomes on that. But Berkshire Hathaway does this better than anybody. And I actually think that most of the finance world has learned from what is one of, if not the best investor over the last you know, 50, 60, 70 years, right? And Warren Buffett yeah, and Charlie yeah. Munger. And so in some crazy way, um, the idea that imitation is the best form of flattery mm-hmm. should be encouraging to that community. It's not a knock against them in any way. Yeah. But that is the ultimate me, right? Religion is the ultimate me. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, not in a negative way, just when you look from a memetic society standpoint, like that yeah. rings true. And so when you look at the structure of a religion, you look at the structure of Berkshire Hathaway's community, I mean, it's literally identical. Right. And so if you then pull that into the modern day, most of those people are not going to be um, the disciples of Berkshire Hathaway, the disciples of a Warren Buffett, mm-hmm. because they view it from a, a age discrimination standpoint, frankly. Mm-hmm. What does that old person know about my world? Right, <laughs> they, they can't see kind of the, uh, the relationship. And in reverse, what does this young person know about My 50 plus years of investing. So it kind of goes both ways. But we have the same thing. We now have a dog on a coin. 
we we have Satoshi. Yeah. Right. We have Kathy Wood. We have yeah. Chamath. We have you know name your uh, Elon Musk. Right? I mean, yeah. you just go down the line. Right. Yeah. It's all the same stuff. Again, not in a negative way at all. It shows right. this is stories as old as time. And so I think that it feels different because there's a magnifying glass. It's on steroids because of mm-hmm. social media and, and, and streaming and, and uh, real-time information and live video and like all that type of stuff. But I think that we also have to understand the positive and negative components. So identifying it is important. Mm. But then when you start to realize, well, people who followed the Berkshire Hathaway religion have done pretty well financially over, you know, 50 plus years. Yeah. My guess is that people that follow the US dollar religion, which is literally it's in God we trust on the actual physical thing, That's right? right? are probably not going to do nearly as well moving forward with an asset that is guaranteed to do devalue mm-hmm. than people who follow the Satoshi religion of Bitcoin mm-hmm. that ends up being structured in a different way. And so when you start to put it in that standpoint and you view lots of things in life as a religion, as a meme, et cetera, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm the muddy waters start to clear up mm-hmm. and you start to just understand like, okay, like that's just how the world works, right? Human yeah. psychology is at play. Markets are made of people. People are human. Humans have emotions, both fear and greed, and they yeah. tend to move in herds. And like, yeah. that's just the, the, the structure of society. And so to kind of bring it back around to the memes, the best communicators in the world today are using the more literal definition of memes. Yeah. But memes are no different than hieroglyphics. Yeah. You're, you know, you know, centuries ago. Yeah. Or no different than uh some sort of um kind of outlandish uh business decision. And I'll give you a good example. I can't remember if it was uh Vanderbilt or uh Carnegie, but there's a documentary, uh The Men Who Built America on the History Channel, one of my favorite mm. uh, kind of episodic series. And uh, either Vanderbilt or Carnegie is building the longest, largest bridge in the United States over the Mississippi River uh, in St. Louis. And nobody wants to use it. They're all scared. It can't hold any real weight. It's, it's too big. There's no way that you, know, you scientifically could engineer this. And so that he goes and he gets an elephant and he personally walks the elephant across the bridge. <laughs> That's a meme. So just imagine, yeah, I mean, just imagine today that would be a meme, right? Yes. Like, like if, yeah. photos, bam, viral, everything from the jokes to the serious to the, you know, here's the 50 thread breakdown on Twitter of how much the elephant weighs, and, you yes. know, whatever, right? It's just that they didn't have the tools that we have today, but I promise you, the kids in those communities were talking about the elephant across the bridge for years. They were telling their grandkids, let yeah. me tell you about the time that the elephant walked across the bridge. Yeah. Right? yeah. And so <clears throat> nothing is different. Yeah. We talk about it different. We, we have very low kind of memories uh, from a time horizon standpoint. It's just all the same shit. Yeah. Wow. Such an interesting 
way to look at it and that it's almost like the tribalism is built into us, you know, like we, we developed in tribes in a way. And then so that presupposes a hierarchy of some kind, there's a tribal leader. And then I guess the tribal leader has to take these, uh, you know, I guess we'd call it maybe a flex today, but these grand actions at times to really convince people to go this direction, right. To cross the bridge in your example. And that when you do that successfully, it is an, inc- it is the most powerful way to move people, right? You get these zealous supporters of Berkshire Hathaway, or I would argue even maybe Apple did a really good job of this, right? They, their customers became their sales force effectively because they were centered on this meme of, I don't, you know, I don't know how you describe Apple's meme originally. It was kind of like F the man, you know, that old commercial where the woman's throwing the hammer through the movie screen. And it was like anti-IBM type uh, mimetic structure. So that's super interesting. Yeah, I think. And then it lends, lends itself to that generational divide between we're just handling memes on the newer media technology, whereas the Berkshires of the world are still doing their annual report or whatever for it to be their, their slow-moving meme versus the fast-moving memes of, of digital tech. Um, that's so cool. I think it's a very misunderstood domain and extremely important. You know, it's literally how you move the world just with memes. So that's, that's super cool. I think you're well known that before getting into this whole game, uh, you served in the armed forces in the United States. Um, you've talked about that pretty extensively, I think. So what, what I'd like to really focus on is the nature of courage, actually. Like what going to war clearly takes a lot of courage. I think entrepreneurship takes a lot of courage. You're now a public figure, which in many ways takes courage itself. You know, you, we were just talking about memes, uh, you know, as you're the more of a public figure you become, the more, uh, people will tend to either build you up or beat you down with memes. So there's definitely a lot of, uh, skin thickening and or ego bruising that kind of comes with the territory. How do you think, I mean, maybe think is the wrong word. I know, uh, thinking about it can, doesn't necessarily go hand in hand with virtue at time, but how do you approach courage or dealing with fear? Like, do you, are there certain techniques or uh, just maybe a philosophy you, you use to approach life courageously? So I think courage is uh, a very interesting topic. Um, society likes to uh, identify courageous people. They like to um, label uh, various folks uh, courageous. It makes us feel good. It makes us feel like we're in control. Mm. I tend to think that courage uh, only can occur with a understanding of risk or fear. Mm -hmm. So if you do something, you don't know that it's risky. Are you really courageous? (laughs) Yeah, good point. Maybe, maybe you took a courageous action, but you weren't necessarily being courageous, right? Like, like the, the uh, intentionality, the understanding of it is really important. Yes. And so 
along those lines, when I think of, uh, you know, let's take my uh, example for uh, as a uh, kind of talking point around the army. I joined when I was 17. I literally had to have my parents sign off. There was zero understanding of when I joined, you're going to go to war. We were at war as a country. Yeah. But as a 17 year old kid, it was like, oh man, I'm going to go shoot guns and run around and like jump out of planes. (laughs) And like, they're going to give me a signing bonus. And like, it's amazing. Like, this is going to be so cool. (laughs) If instead they had been like, rather than like join the army, they had been like, go to war. Way less people would sign the document. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. (laughs) Like, like this idea of like, oh, it was courageous. Like, ah, kind of asterisk. Right. To, to, to some degree. Then if you uh, fast forward a little bit, I try to be as like intellectually honest with myself really as possible. I was 20 years old. I had no wife, kids, you know, nothing. And I went with people that were in their late 20s, early 30s for the most part, who had wives, kids, mortgages, real lives, you know, the whole Mm -hmm. thing. My understanding of the risk we were taking was near zero compared to theirs. Mm, I literally did not have it hit me until the first real kind of, you know, violent action while we were there. But the act of going, it's not really courageous if you don't understand the risk. Mm. Right. You're you're almost doing something out of an ignorance. Mm. And so in hindsight, yes, courageous people can do courageous things. Um, We just have to be careful of celebritizing Mm. courage in scenarios where it can be explained by ignorance of risk. Right. And I take that because it's really important for us to understand what true courage is and to celebritize that. Mm-hmm. And so I'll give you a perfect example is uh, there's a gentleman and I'll, I'll kind of s- simplistically explain what he did uh, named Dakota Meyer. Mm-hmm. And Dakota was on a uh, deployment. There was a mission. He basically kept, you know, being pretty much a pain in the ass for everyone on the mission and saying, I think this is pretty dangerous. This is crazy. This is a suicide mission. We shouldn't do this. You know, yeah, yeah, whatever. So much so that they took him off the mission and put him in like the support, uh, um, you know, kind of uh, vehicles. Yeah. And the way the story is told is that he got in the Humvee and he said to the driver, the people who are going into this village are going to get in some shit today. They should not be going, but they're going to go. And when I tell you, Basically, get the hell out of the seat of this truck because I'm driving it. I'm going to go save. So full understanding of risk, the gravity of the situation, and intentionality before the event of when this happens, I am going to act. Hmm. That is not an emotional reaction. It is not a, uh, a reflex. There's intentionality there. Long story short is on multiple occasions throughout this day in a very intense firefight, he and the driver of that vehicle drive into a village in close combat, take fire, 
and rescue a ton of people. Mm. Some of them Afghan soldiers, eventually some U.S. soldiers, uh, and then eventually they recover uh, the bodies of some deceased uh, U.S. soldiers. And the reason why I clarify between an ignorance of risk versus that specific knowledge of risk is it's way easier to back out of the situation where you have knowledge of the risk Mm -hmm. and basically succumb to the situation than it is when I didn't understand the risk. I'm in now I'm in it. I got to react and, you know, kind of just like your, your training takes over. Now, the good thing in a military standpoint is the military trains you to be able to uh, kind of have a reflex, and they almost don't want you to think about the risk, right? Mm -hmm. It's just like, hey, this happens, do this, this, and this, and they just train it into you, and and, and you're kind of programmed in that way. But I do think that if you're going to have a conversation about courage, you have to have a conversation of the knowledge of the risk. Because if we didn't, if no one was aware of risk, we would all be courageous. Right. And so if you then bring that to less kind of violent combat and you look at maybe something like journalism, you know, there are journalists around the world that risk their lives mm. to do what they do. There are also journalists, specifically in the United States, who claim courage and claim, you know, kind of all of these uh, very honorable things that our society puts up on a pedestal. Because like mean people say, you know, people say like mean things to them on the internet. Yeah. And it's like, kind of, sure. (laughs) Maybe people shouldn't be mean on the internet. Like that's a whole nother discussion. (laughs) But like when a society commoditizes the use of the most honorable and kind of uh, important things that a person can take. There's a big degradation in society of the aspiration for people to act that way. Right. Because if all of a sudden you are courageous because you did something in the face of people saying mean things to you. Right. Versus you are willing to literally be jailed or killed to hold a person in power accountable. Yeah. When everyone is courageous, no one is. Right. Because it's commoditized. And so those are extreme examples. Yeah. But we can pull from those lessons around just being very careful about the way that we use words uh, because words do matter. And I think that as a society, when it's like any company, right? There's a a gentleman, um, Frank Sloot, who runs uh, Snowflake. Uh, which is a uh, B2B you know, SaaS uh, software company. And he has this thought process, and I'm kind of paraphrasing. Companies are made of people, and people underestimate what they can accomplish, and they underestimate the timeframes in which they can accomplish it. Mm-hmm. But if you hold them to the highest standard and you demand excellence, the right people will rise to that standard and they will perform. Mm-hmm. We should do the same in society mm. because a society that holds a high standard of its people will surprise itself with what it can accomplish and in what time frames. But when you start to cater to the opposite end of the spectrum, 
and you start to relax standards to have folks psychologically feel good, right? But not actually be able to meet the standard, then you actually just lead to an overall degradation of society. Right. And so there's a whole bunch of complex stuff in there. I don't have the answers. A lot of other people don't have the answers. I don't think anybody actually has the answer because there isn't one answer. But I generally just think that going back to the standard of I wake up and I say, today's going to be a good day. Mm -hmm. If you can hold yourself to the highest standard, then naturally other people around you will also do the same. Mm-hmm. And if everyone holds themselves to their own highest standard, we all rise together. It's not a yeah. zero sum thing, right? You right. don't have to leave people behind. You don't have to have a, a negative impact. But in some crazy way, that's an old school way of thinking now. Yeah. Right? Like, like that, that is not the consensus thinking in the Western world today, which, uh, you know, look, maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe it does. We'll find out. Yeah, I that's a super interesting line of thinking. Um the the idea that we need we actually that courage needs to be as with all words, right? We need to speak intentionally, clearly with precision. That courage is something you do. You you knowingly face the unknown or fear or a, a potentially bad situation. And you take action that is often selfless, right? So someone's going into this village that's under assault to rescue people versus the courage, quote unquote, of someone, you know, standing up for their pronouns online or some weird, you know, some very mutilated or secondary form of courage. I don't know if courage is the right word for that. So I think that's that's a great, great point. And then this concept of excellence demanding excellence. It's almost like that, you know, I, I always tie these things back to the money. I just have this big instinct um, that by diluting and bastardizing the money that we've we've polluted our own morality, we've polluted our own language in a lot of ways. There, there are cultural ramifications, let's say, to distorting the money. And it's like that that holding each other to high standards, that's kind of what we do in a free market, right? It's like we're competing with one another to see who can do the thing the best. And if you can't do the thing the best, then you're sorted out of the, you know, the economic gene pool, so to speak. But we've completely done away with those those principles, these competitive principles that push us to excel, to become excellent. And now we give kids participation trophies and 13th place and 18th place and all of this. So it's, we've gotten so far away from the principles on which, you know, capitalism, I guess, for lack of a better term, was was founded. Um, I think there's also an element of this, of um, this is all natural, right? And what I mean by that is uh, if you live long enough as a competitor in the arena, you become the man. Mm, survival, yeah. Bill Gates at one point was the challenger. He was the upstart. He was the disruptor. He lived long enough. He is now the big, bad, evil man, the incumbent, 
the legacy player that the next generation, the upstart, the challenger wants to disrupt. Yeah. Over and over and over mm -hmm. again. One of the best examples of this was the recent Epic Games Apple situation where mm -hmm. Apple and Epic Games are locked in a legal battle. And Epic Games basically took their 1984 commercial and mm -hmm. flipped it on its head, used a lot of the same imagery, and essentially said, you were once us. Yeah. But now you have become that thing you were fighting against. Yeah. Right? And again, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. But I think that's, as a society, that happens as well. Yeah. We fought the American Revolution. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And now we run around the world taxing and, you know, squeezing and yeah. being this ever reaching kind of big monolithic nation state. Yeah. Some of it highly defensible. There's reasons why we do it. Um, there's tons of nuance and complexity in the world, but the irony cannot be lost on us that if you live long enough, you become the man. Yeah. And if we go back not that long ago in history, America was that developing nation that was trying to rid themselves of the nanny state of the, the, the nation state of which they were born. Yeah. And that's just the evolution of time, right? Yeah. I mean, this has been this has happened so many times that you can't call it the outlier because it is the it is the default, it is the standard. And so, in order to have a society become the man, the members that make up that society normally will become fat, happy, mm -hmm. content cats. All right? Yeah. They will they they will rest on their laurels. And I think that's where you see the data shows many, I don't think it's over 50%, but a very high double-digit percentage of the billion-plus-dollar businesses built in this country come from people not from this country. Yeah. And there is a hunger. There is a, uh, yes. a pursuit of something that they don't have where they come from, and so they come here for opportunity. And they don't yeah. take it for granted. And so there's just this element of um, like, you got to be one bad person to want to go ram your, your you know, face into a wall every day and build a company to that level of success. Yeah, maybe I could go get a hundred K job working at Google. Yeah. Right. Like, like those two different types of people. Yeah. And if you live in a society where everything's pretty good, and you can be content. You just never have the edge, right? right. You never have that kind of, if I don't produce, if I don't perform at the highest level, I won't make it out of here. I, yes. I, I won't achieve this thing. And so there's this element of uh, iron sharpens iron. Yeah. A society is no different. It's just now somehow... We've taken two groups of people and we've bastardized them. Mm -hmm. The people who are the equivalent of the iron that are trying to sharpen everyone else, mm -hmm. they are now put in a corner. They are um, you know, not empathetic. They are not uh, kind of adhering to this new kind of societal standard. But also we've taken 
those that have become the most successful, those who actually have the ability to teach the rest of us the most, to show us a path of prosperity and economic freedom and, and security. And we have essentially put them in another corner and said they must all be bad people. Mm-hmm. Even though the data suggests that their actions have led to enormous economic output, job right. creation, yeah. wealth creation of their employees, their shareholders, all, all these things that from a pure quantitative standpoint proves they have done more for economic prosperity in our country than most right. anybody else as an individual. We no longer celebritize those people. We now punish them in yeah. society. That's natural. Yeah. Right. The kings and queens eventually got bastardized as well. <laughs> right. right? Like yeah. it's just, and so again, if you take the historical context and you overlay it onto today's society, you have to one say to yourself, it's unlikely I can change the course of history in this sense, because this is just the natural evolution of cycles, but you can contextualize it and it kind of just calms you. You're like, yeah, that's just what happened. Like, yeah. This is a, a natural thing, right? It kind of would be like if you and I spent our entire life trying to uh, reverse gravity yeah. right, on earth, that we were like, we are going to break the, uh, the principles of gravity. <laughs> okay, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> or you could just say gravity is true and move on, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, so, that's so interesting. Um, what's the old saying that you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain type of thing? Um, does, so it's, it's the other thing it reminds me of is people, every human is no better than their incentives effectively, but we're demonizing the billionaires today. I would argue because, and whether people realize this or not, doesn't necessarily matter. It's that the middle class is being eroded through central bank intervention effectively. So then they start to just look at, oh, I'm, my paycheck's the same. All the prices are going up. I'm getting crushed. Jeff Bezos is getting filthy rich. Let's blame Bezos. But they're misdiagnosing the situation, right? Like in a free market, if Bezos is successful, then every, the, the productivity gains are dispersed to everyone through a hard currency in the form of falling prices. So is that does Bitcoin change this recurrent pattern in, in society that we stop Maybe we stop demonizing the rich because in reality, those are the pre- people that solve the most problems for all of us, right? We all love Amazon. We all love getting our stuff overnighted to us. Um, how do you see Bitcoin playing into that? I think it just flips the model on its head. When you centralize control, as we have over the last number of centuries, we went from a barter system where the currency that you and I had were things that we and we alone had control of producing. I raised my chickens and I got the eggs and I came and I traded with the wood table or the rug or the crop that you produced. Mm-hmm. And those were the currencies that we were responsible for. So you essentially had to put time and effort and energy into creating the currency of which you then could use for barter. 
That is the most decentralized form of currency in the world mm -hmm. is the barter system. Over time, through a pursuit of efficiency, we began to centralize all economic activity until the ultimate culmination of centralization in central banks. Mm -hmm. Now, nobody controls the currency except for a very, very small group of people. 330 million Americans, plus however many other hundreds of millions of people around the world use the US dollar on an annual basis, all are susceptible to the decisions made by less than 100 people. Crazy. The amount of leverage from an economic control standpoint that is provided by being the head of the Federal Reserve or being an elected official that has the ability to pass legislation that leads to monetary stimulus or fiscal stimulus is unlike any amount of power in history mm -hmm. through the leverage of centralized control of a currency. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin does not strip them of that power. What Bitcoin does is it actually says, keep that power. Continue to centralize it further. Continue to use the model of what you believe to be the globally dominant superior model. And what Bitcoin does is it says, we are going to build a different model and we are going to give free choice. We are going to actually allow the market to determine popularity rather than make it a zero-sum game of Bitcoin wins, dollar loses, or Bitcoin mm. wins, euro uh, loses. When you have competition, what we get and what is actually the most important part of the competitive landscape is the winner is the user. Mm. Mm -hmm. Because now the user right. gets the benefit of the competition. The competition does not benefit Bitcoin and it does not benefit the central bank. It benefits the user. And so if we truly care about the end user, we should encourage all forms of monetary competition because a free market will determine the best and a free market will allow for the best end user experience. There are plenty of reasons why there are 100 people who don't want that to happen. There are plenty of reasons why um, it's scary. Uh, it is impactful regardless of the outcome of that situation. And there's a lot of unknowns along the way, including sequence of events, severity of events, um, kind of magnitude of pros and cons. Mm -hmm. We just don't know. Right. But I think if you look at it from a pure framework standpoint of competition leads to better outcomes for the user, you then can see a level of irony that is hard to ignore in that we have a US government that is currently working on numerous antitrust legislation, inquiries, pressures, et cetera, on major tech companies that they accuse of monopolies <laughs> while running a monopoly themselves over the economic control of an entire population. I don't have the answers, but what I do know 
is that when you look at the definition from an economics perspective of a central bank, there are two key components, which is one, it should be independent, and two, is it should be reliable or predictable. Mm -hmm. So a level of certainty and a level of independence. There is no level of independence greater than a decentralized central bank, which Bitcoin has mm -hmm. in their monetary policy and network construction. There is no higher degree of certainty than a programmatic, transparent monetary policy. And so when you have independence and certainty to the central bank, you have the most superior central bank. Mm -hmm. And we unfortunately live in a world where we made prior errors and cannot go back and correct them, where those centralized entities now have to continue to be unpredictable or risk system failure. Right. And so, although I rail against and call out the continuation of the errors of what is happening, it is not lost on me that they have no other choice. Right. They have a forced hand. It is like being told, do the wrong thing, but there is no other option. Right. <laughs> so... That then leads back to the only response you as an individual have is to go to the free market, yeah. to go find competition. And I think that is why Bitcoin has ultimately become so popular is because people see it not necessarily as a replacement for the US dollar, the euro, or any other fiat currency, but merely as at first a complement mm -hmm. in the store of value properties that it provides, which are non-existent in the legacy system. And so as you, I, and many others have kind of, I think, accurately identified, what starts out as a store of value and a complementary feature is likely to grow to be something much more than that. Yeah. But at the outset, that is the most simplistic, you know, kind of engagement or, or relationship between this decentralized programmatic monetary policy and the fiat system. Yeah, I, I love the framing of central banking premised on these concepts of independence, supposed to be independent of politics, essentially, and predictability, right? We need sound and reliable rules to build an economic strategy to go out and deal with the unknown and to create businesses and compete and generate wealth. And to your point, it's like they, once that was compromised initially, the predictability and the independence, frankly, that the only direction that goes is accelerating unpredictability. And so every time we have an economic crisis now, it's like we've printed the bailouts are an order of magnitude larger each time. So the unpredictability being injected into the money supply and hence the broader economy is just it's exploding every time we have one of these crises. And so it makes all like that framing is so good because it makes all the sense in the world that people operating under the central banking paradigm that is 
increasingly more dependent on politics, less independent, and increasingly and acceleratingly unpredictable are going to move towards money that is truly independent and truly predictable, which that's the core value proposition of Bitcoin. It's apolitical money. There's, it doesn't matter what disputes or fights are going on in the world. No one can go and switch us from 21 million to 42 million or whatever it is. And it's perfectly predictable. We know exactly how much is issued every day and how much there ever will be. So I think it's great, great framing. People could just see it that way, you know, that we need money that's independent and predictable. Um, definitely makes Bitcoin look good. So there's another, there's one other thing just real quick before we go on yeah. um, that I think it's lost on people, which is um, Ricardo Salinas who is, uh, I think, the third richest man in uh, Mexico. And I may be pronouncing his name incorrectly, but he had this video that, uh, that went viral earlier this year. And in it, and again, I'm not going to get the exact numbers correct, but, but directionally, right? He said, look, when I was a boy, seven pesos to one US dollar, mm -hmm. right? Or 10 pesos to one US dollar, whatever it was. Today, 20,000 pesos to one US dollar. Crazy. And he was using it as a way to highlight the devaluation of the peso. But what that comparison does not account for is that is a, let's say, 10 to 20,000 change in the peso compared to a dollar that has also lost, you know, in the last 50 years, 80, 90% of its purchasing power. Right. And so when you have a, numerator and a denominator that are both evolving and you merely compare the change in one of them but do not right. account for both of them right you get a misleading story yes and so that is the mechanism of which most of us will make the comparisons and measure the data but that is probably not the true totality right of the story which highlights it's probably worse than we think right yeah so if you'd done the same peso analysis in gold it's going to be that a, an additional bump of 80 or 90 percent whatever value the dollar loss over that time frame and in that the us dollar really is the best of the worst frankly right all these fiat currencies you know, as I've argued, I, and I think this is mechanically true, is they are pyramid schemes. They're just an enforced network technology. And one group is privileged to produce and distribute the dollars at the expense of everyone else, effectively. What if, if we look real quick, uh, and this is, let's see how long I can get here. Um, in Mexican pesos, the dollar ends up being, um, let's see how far back I can go real quick. I can go back all the way to 1950, probably not. But just in July of 2019, it was 26,600 pesos. Mm. Today, it takes 36,300 pesos. And that wow. is in two years. Wow. So you're talking about, from a peso standpoint, about a 50% increase, you know, 40% increase or so yeah. in that price of gold in Mexican pesos.
you go further back, I'm sure it is way, way worse. Yeah. Yeah. And it's such a pervasive issue that the way I've described it is it's almost like central banks by hacking the money, they've hacked human software in a way, right? Like the way we perceive the world is through the dollar. So, you know, our house price is going up. We think things are good, but what's actually happening is the perceptual economic prism through which we're looking is actually being diminished. And it, it's incredible how successful the illusion has been, this, this fiat currency pyramid scheme. What to you does that say? I know you've described money as a belief system. And I, I agree with this with the caveat that like it's a social construct. I don't think we can just arbitrarily choose money. Like The market tends to sort things out for certain properties over time. But the fiat currency pyramid scheme has been resoundingly successful from a central bank standpoint. What does this say about the gullibility of humans? And are we, as Bitcoiners, are we overly optimistic about people, you know, the market sorting out um, the best tech or, you know, are we, uh, uh, I guess it's hard to ask if we have blind spots, but what does this say about the gullibility of humans in, in relationship to money? I don't think it's gullibility. I think it's, again, ignorance, mm. right? When you are handed an item, whether it is digital or physical, majority of people don't ask, what is this and how does it work? They simply look for the utility of it and move on. It takes an independent thinker, a, a curious person, somebody who has um, an insatiability for information to ask, what is this? And how does it work? Fortunately, in majority of use cases, an item, whether physical or digital, having a comprehension of utility of that item is sufficient. Mm -hmm. If I know how to use it, it's all I really need to know. I don't understand how the internet works, but I know how to use it. I'm okay. Mm -hmm. I don't actually know what the engineering behind this car is, but I know how to use it. I'm okay. I don't know how to make this hamburger, but I know how to use it. I'm okay. I know how to spend this dollar or save this dollar, but I don't know how it works. I'm okay. But what we know through history is the currency is probably the one thing that having a curiosity for information, understanding how it works, ends up being the difference between being rich or poor in the developed world. Yeah. Because when you start to look at things like the national minimum wage is $7.25 in the United States. It has been since 2009. The cost of living has increased at least 20% on the low end. And in some cases, people estimate as much as 50% over that decade. Mm. And so from a purchasing power standpoint, the cost of goods and services around you has exploded. Yet you as a minimum wage worker continue to get paid the same. Right. Even if you look in the last year, one of the most fascinating things to me is most companies give kind of 2%, 3% bonuses to uh, mitigate the impact of inflation. 
BlackRock gave all of their employees an 8% across the board bump in pay to accommodate for the absolute historic devaluation of the currency. 8%. Hmm. The average worker didn't get that. But that is an organization filled with people who understand how money works, understand the economic right. machine, and understand that a 2% bump in pay this year would have meant they get paid less. Yeah. And so ultimately, the wealth inequality gap has nothing to do with billionaires. It has nothing to do with those that are less financially fortunate. It has everything to do with information. Mm-hmm. Because 33% of millionaires never made 100K in a year. 80% never received a single dollar in, in inheritance. Yeah. They simply knew whether intentionally or not, do not save your dollars. You have to invest. And if you invest, then you can build a life of wealth, freedom, and happiness. And so that's ultimately kind of brings it full circle as to education is the thing that can level the playing field, yeah. regardless of what you make. You can be a teacher in our country and literally make thirty dollars or $40,000. And if you start early enough and you've got the right information, you can become a millionaire. Mm. Most people don't need to be a millionaire to have any level of security. They have $500,000 to their name. They're okay. They don't have immense consumption needs. But if you can achieve kind of a million dollars and you have the knowledge, as the currency continues to be devalued, you can then say, if 10 million is the new million 20 years from now, you will be able to not only keep up with, but you will actually be able to surpass the growth rate that is needed to mitigate true inflation. Mm-hmm. And so it's not a gold ability. It's not, they told me something and I believed it. Mm. It just never told you anything. Mm. And you never asked, how does this work? Because mm. we live in a society where the pursuit of efficiency, the pursuit of ease, the pursuit of uh, kind of on demand, all of those things remove the need for the question of how does this work? Right. But if you go all the way back in history to that barter system with a fully decentralized monetary system, if I wanted to travel, how does the horse work? <laughs> I have to ask that question. Yeah. If I want to build something on my property, how does this work? Right. If I want to gain the currency, whether it was eggs or a wood table or anything, how does this work? Yeah. The question was inherent to the lifestyle because everything you had to do yourself. Right. When you abstract away the work, it abstracts away the need to ask the question of how does this work and therefore leads to a pure ignorance across society. Be, and that is okay because 90% of situations or more, you don't actually need to know. Yeah. It just so happens that the one situation where you need to know, nobody ever asks. Yeah. We end up, when we economize, we end up deferring to experts effectively, right? So your car, the internal workings of your car are not relevant to you until your car breaks down and you're stuck on the side of the road. Then all of a sudden you either need to know or you need an expert that does know. And I guess the same is true with currency, right? Like the dollar, I can spend it, I can save it, works great until it breaks down on the side of the road. Then all of a sudden you're gonna wish you had known something about money. So, all right, 
like clearly you and I are on the same page about Bitcoin. We I'm pretty confident we see it going the same direction. We're moving towards a world where Bitcoin is one of if not the dominant monetary networks. I'm just going to ask a really jam-packed question here. What does the path to quote unquote hyper bitcoinization look like? If you see it, if you see hyper bitcoinization as as a probability, what then happens to central banks? What's going to happen to nation states? Do the nation states fight back? If so, how? Like what what does this path look like to you? Like clearly we have no <laughs> I'm not going to hold you to it because we have no historical precedent whatsoever. And we're talking about predicting the future, but I just want to try to get an understanding of how you see this playing out. Short answer is I don't know. And I don't think that there's anyone who can speak with full certainty on it. I think that we can take a probabilistic view. And I think the highest probability answer is it will be incredibly messy it will be incredibly sad. It will be incredibly painful. And it's actually a situation and sequence of events that I wish would not happen. Mm. And I say that because I do not believe the powers of centralization relinquish control whether rightly or not, easily. With that said, one of the highest probabilities ways to get to some greater a level of adoption and some greater level of um, defense maybe already happened, which is you have to go to the individual before you go to the institution. Mm. Before the internet, that was impossible because you needed the institution to communicate to the individual. Mm -hmm. The only way to communicate was to print newspapers or to go and hold town halls or town squares. Mm -hmm. You could not communicate without the institution. The internet allowed us to communicate directly with some degree of privacy. And so now today we have over 100 million people. We have you know, billions of dollars deployed into infrastructure to support the strongest computing network in the world. That already occurred. From here, I think there's two key perspectives or stories to watch. The smallest, biggest challenge countries have to act in a way to accelerate this. And thankfully, for those that believe in Bitcoin, those countries are financially incentivized to do so. So El Salvador is a great example. Mm when you start to have countries adopt, it changes the game in a way that is very hard to ignore, but there's an incentive to do it. 
The second thing is time. And the reason why I say time is because there's a level of pain that is needed to wake somebody up to go search for a new solution. Mm. The greatest enemy of greatness is just good enough. Mm. And so if you look at the United States as an example, we're just good enough. We have just enough of a store of value. We have just enough lack of friction in medium of exchange. We have just enough accessibility within hours of operations with a drive to a physical location. Just enough security because if something goes wrong, we have insurance. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you, I, nor majority of U.S. market participants have the pain needed to go check it out. That's not true of everywhere in the world. And so in places like Nigeria, Pakistan, Lebanon, Venezuela, Argentina, et cetera, there's immense, immense, immense interest in Bitcoin because they feel the pain. Mm. If you talk to somebody from Venezuela, they're a currency expert. They're mm. an inflation expert. Not from academic theory, but from practical life experience. They can tell you exactly how inflation occurs. They can tell you exactly what the negative impact of inflation is. They can tell you exactly what you can do to mitigate it if caught in a hyperinflationary event. But they will also warn you of the arrogance that is needed to get into that situation. Mm. And they will warn you of the arrogance needed from a population that will not act until a certain pain threshold is reached. Mm. And so to me, in a very, very sad situation, there's a lot of just good enough around the world. Mm. And, there, and just good enough leads to abuse of those powers. And those abuse of powers turn just good enough into good. And then there's more abuse of powers. And then good turns into not so good. And not so good turns into bad. And then eventually you get to pretty bad. People start to wake up. And then when you hit very bad, everyone runs. Yeah, And we've seen it in country after country after country where it is hard for people to wrap their head around. Venezuela was the richest country in South America and today is the poorest. Right. That decline took not that long in the arc of history. And so I think that we live a privileged life in the United States where everyone looks at this as a pure financial investment. Mm -hmm. I'm going to put 1% of my assets. Mm -hmm. Sure. But those same people are using the stock market as an inflation hedge as well. Right. And one of the best performing stock markets every year for the last couple of years, Venezuela, mm -hmm. Argentina, right. Zimbabwe. Yeah. The problem is if you buy the stocks, you may not get out. Right. Because literally the currency in which they are denominated in is devaluing at such a rate that you become a billionaire, a trillionaire in the local currency. Yeah. 
but then the currency collapses and it all goes to zero and you are caught. Yeah. And so if you play stupid games, you get stupid prizes. And that's where I think folks have to be very, very careful and understand asking the question, how does money work? What is money, right? right. To the name of your show. Yeah. That is the single most important question in the world today. And if you have the personal curiosity, you're likely to figure it out. If not, you have to wait till the pain is bad enough to where you feel like you have no other choice. You've lost all hope. You can't get ahead. Yeah. And then you can go look. But we have lesson after lesson after lesson in recent history of don't wait. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, there's a mark there of intelligence, right? To learn from the lessons of history or through the pain of others so that you don't have to experience it directly. What then do you, I mean, these dominant institutions of the world, nation states, central banks, do you see them existing post Bitcoin? Do they just transform? Um, and I guess I'd tack on this one other part of the question. So you're, when we've had our first interview, you told me that your biggest concern for Bitcoin was that not enough people would find the parachute in time, you know, like the planes kind of, I guess, going from good to not so good to bad to very bad. Where do you see that today? Is it the same type of concern? And um, I guess, how is it related to, to, these, to the potential breakdown of institutions? Yeah, I don't, I don't think that um, this whole like hyper-Bitcoinization and all this stuff happens um, nearly at the level nor the speed that people think. And it goes back to the famous Bill Gates quote of, we overestimate what we can accomplish in one year and we underestimate what we can uh, accomplish in 10 years. Mm. But we also do that for things that can happen around us, not just what we can accomplish, but how, the, the sequence of events, the, the timing of events. Yeah. I think what is much more likely is this is a multi-decade sequential event. And one of the biggest risks that people have is that humans are quintessential apes that are distracted by the new shiny thing. And we suck at waiting. We suck at being patient. We suck at doing nothing. That is true in the traditional market as well. Mm -hmm. We want to trade. We want to feel like something's happening. We want to yeah. do something. Yeah. I can't possibly be right if I'm not doing anything. Even though smart, intelligent, well-researched people know doing nothing is usually the best investment strategy. Yeah. Over long periods of time, study after study after study shows the best performing portfolios are people who lost their password or died because <laughs> they just couldn't do anything. <laughs> so... That ends up being the most important thing is the ability to do the work, build conviction, and then to look out decades right. and say to yourself, I can outlast time. <laughs> and that sounds crazy, but the only way, I'm human just like everybody else. Right. I get excited. I get, you know, down. I get all this stuff. 
the only way that I found to be at peace with this and have an actual strategy that helps me in that mindset is I say, I'm going to hand all my Bitcoin to my grandchildren. Mm. Because then it's not about waiting. It's simply about an action that is predetermined to be very far in the future. Yeah. And to me, that is tangible. That is um, a psychological trick that people have been playing on themselves for centuries. Yeah. I'm going to pass the family gold down. I'm going to pass the family jewelry on. I'm going to pass the family property on. I'm going to pass the family business on. Yeah. I'm going to pass the family Bitcoin on. It is no different. It's just psychologically, if you can get in that mentality, you then will be doing a disservice. You'll be violating the social contract with your yet-to-be-born grandchildren. Yeah. Of which you will disappoint yourself and therefore you won't do it. Right. And so it's just understanding you're human, understanding you're going to be just as dumb as the next ape next to you. And if you can trick yourself, just like you can trick yourself by saying, I'm going to have a good day today, you can trick yourself into saying, I'm not going to make any decision mm. for, de for decades because there's some higher calling. There's some action at the end mm. that you desire more than the desire for control today. Yeah. It's interesting. That's yeah, kind of maybe another area where religion helps is helping people set that high moral aim that's beyond their own life, um, kind of life hacks them into making proper decisions. So then the path here really to prosperity in many ways is education followed by patience. Um, very easy to say, much more difficult to do. So very interesting stuff. The, I want to just touch on a couple of things real quick on, you mentioned your grandchildren. I guess we'll go here first. <laughs> if we could get personal for a minute, how's married life, man. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I am, uh, uh, one of these people who, uh, like many, uh, young ambitious men, uh, never thought I would be married, never thought, uh, I would, uh, want that life, etc. Yeah. I met Plano. We got married, you know, within, I don't know, two, three years. And, uh, then you get to the other side of the, uh, the fraternity of married people. And, and <laughs> you realize what everyone's been saying of like, did what? What was I thinking? How could I have been so ignorant and stupid before? <laughs> um, no, but I I, uh, I, I really, really um, uh, enjoy it, and I think that it's one of these things where uh, it sounds so cliche, but once you experience it, I think it kind of resonates. If you're just like you get to spend every single day with your best friend, with the person that when something happens, you want to call, etc. And there's something unique and special about that. Yeah. So, um, I don't know. It's just, that there's not really words that you're going to use that are any different than anybody else other than just like, it's awesome. Yeah. Right? It's kind of yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. it's it kind of the easiest way to think about it. Yeah. And are you guys talking about kids? Is that, is that in the cards for you yet? Are you kind of trying to wait a few years? At some point we'll have kids for sure. Yeah. I think it's, um, 
it, it's always a thing when you think of children as uh, a friend of mine just had a kid. It's about six months old. And I asked him, I said, uh, how'd you decide? He's like, dude, I wasn't ready. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? He was like, well, one of my buddies told me like, you're never ready. So just like, you might as well do it. Yeah. And I was like, not very reassuring, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I, th- I think it's just, uh, it's with all new things, but, but I think kids specifically, cause you, you realize that, oh wait, another human would be dependent on me. Yeah. Um, right. Like, like grade yourself on how well you take care of yourself <laughs> and how we'll apply that to somebody else. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, no, I agree. No one's ever ready because kind of like being married, you just, there's not a lot of other words you can add to it. So transformational, but extraordinarily difficult, you know, like the work is just next level when, once kids are in the picture. Um, so maybe just to close us out, we'll ask, ask a lightweight question. You said that in your view, the meaning of life is to enjoy it, which I think like a lot of, you know, even your mantra too is, is very simple, straightforward, but potent. What does that mean? Specifically? Like, how do you go about enjoying your life and where do you find a sense of meaning in your day to day? Like, I, I'm sure the work has a lot to do with it. Um, so maybe you could speak to that, but also just anything else that uh, particularly gives your life a lot of meaning or enjoyment. The only way I know to answer this question is how do you define it on a micro scale? Because I believe the macro measurement of happiness is ultimately made up of the micro moments of happiness. Mm-hmm. You can't have macro happiness without micro happiness. Mm-hmm. And the only way that I think you can have micro happiness is if you pursue the things that you actually want to do. I don't think it's possible to be happy and do things that you do not want to do. Mm. And so when you are able to wake up every day and look forward to what you're doing Mm -hmm. and then go to sleep at night and look forward to what you're going to do the next day, to me, that is a level of happiness that is hard to quantify but it's easily recognizable when you have it. Mm. And it all starts with offensively designing your day Mm. because there's so many people that are operating their day, not for what they want to do, but for what other people want them to do for pleasing other people. Right. But what you find is that the people who go through their life, just trying to please everyone else, usually receive the least amount of respect from those around them. They receive no. the, the least amount of seriousness because if you don't respect yourself enough to spend the time that you have the way that you want to, why will anyone else respect your time? Why will anyone else respect your efforts? Yeah. That might be an extreme view of it, 
but directionally lines you up with, if you wake up every day, you're excited about what you're going to do. You're in control of what you're going to do. You get micro happiness. And a lot of that's driven also by not only the action, but who you do it with. Right. And then if you go to sleep every night, you say, I had a good day today. And you just do that every day. For 80 or 90 years, you win. <laughs> just <Right>? that easy. <laughs> it's just, it, I, I think a lot about, uh, there, I'll leave you with this thought. Years ago, there was a football coach at the University of Rutgers, or Rutgers University. His name was Greg Schiano. Mm. And he had a saying, chop the wood. And he literally had a motion for it. It was like a chopping motion. And the whole idea was, if I'm standing on one side of the forest, and I got to get to the other, and I got an axe in my hand, there's no amount of complaining, there's no amount of thinking, there's no amount of anything else that's going to get me to the other side of the forest, other than to start chopping. And if you get to the first tree, and you start chopping, and you just focus on chopping and chopping and chopping and mm-hmm. chopping. Eventually the tree falls. Mm-hmm. Then you go to the second tree and you start <laughs> chopping and, and you, and you just day in day out and you just keep chopping. And it's this relentless energy and this like relentless nature that ultimately allows you to take one day at a time and eventually it all adds up. And so I think that it's just discipline. It's just this, this, uh, uh, kind of, fortitude and refusing to allow your human brain to lull you to sleep and trick you into blacking out and waking up 40 years later and saying, what happened to the time? Right, right, right. And the best way to chop is to do dope shit. (laughs) (laughs) That is a powerful parable and a great way to close this out. I, just want to thank you dude for being a huge inspiration um you've always you've always kept in contact with me especially i think when things have been rough and i just want to say i appreciate that um i think you're a stand-up guy and i appreciate everything you're doing in the space and uh glad to know you as a human man so listen i've learned i've learned a ton from you and uh you just keep doing these shows because I watch every single one of them and uh, I learn. And as long as I'm learning, I'm sure other people are too. So uh, just keep it up. Love it. I will keep fighting the educational battle alongside you. Um, Anthony, thanks so much for coming on and uh, see you again soon. All right. Thanks so much, buddy.